Welcome to episode six of Behind the Stage. I'm your host, Gavin Dean Smith. If you're a new listener, thanks for checking us out. If you're an existing listener, thanks for your continued support. When I first started this podcast, I wanted there to be an agenda. I wanted this to be a podcast surrounding different roles and different working positions in the music industry, whether it was tour managing, guitar teching, producing, audio engineering, photography, and so on. And for the most part, the theme has remained pretty consistent. I just found that there's not a lot of podcasts out there surrounding some of those roles in the music industry, and I thought that it could be a really cool resource for somebody who's in the music industry to check out, maybe see if there's some alternatives, and just find ways of staying involved even if they're not on stage all the time. Episode 6 is with Jake Dwiggins, who I met on tour in 2009 while he was drumming for the Ataris. I'll be honest, this conversation is not about an alternative role in the music industry. I haven't talked to Jake in a very long time. I wanted to take some time to catch up, and I'm never going to turn down an opportunity to uh, promote some of my friends and what they're doing. At the time that I met Jake, we were both super young, and we were both doing a lot of touring. Even after we toured, Jake and I went on to have a really close personal relationship as well. There are some stories that we talk about and we reference that we do not condone. We were young kids, we were dumb, we made some decisions that we shouldn't, and I just want to start there. While we reflect and laugh about a lot of things that we encountered on tour, there's also some parts of this conversation that are not funny at all. If you're struggling with addiction and you really need help, there's resources that are available. Jake even lets the listeners know in this interview that if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you need someone to talk to or if you need a resource, hit him up. He'll absolutely point you in the right direction. And while it might be late to the game, September 2021 was Suicide Prevention Month. If you or somebody you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, feel free to reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Before we jump into the episode, make sure you're following us on Instagram, at Behind the Stage Podcast. So here we go, episode six with Jake Dwiggins. What's up, beautiful? Hey, bud. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Long time no talk. What's new? Not a whole lot's new. I just got home from work. And uh, I live I live in seclusion on a river in the woods. So it sounds awesome. <laughs> How long have you been here for? Six months. Sorry, I'm making sure a cat didn't just get out. No, I have no fine. idea. Why the move? <laughs> Why the move? Because you were living in Indianapolis, right? I'm still in Indy. I'm actually, even though it looks secluded, I'm three minutes from the Broad Ripple Strip. I don't know, two minutes from another area of busy, bustling Indianapolis shit. So, <laughs> Oh, that's not awful then. Yeah, no, it's great. How are you? What's going on? Not a whole lot, man. Same old shit. Just yeah. trying to live. Yeah, I hear that. That's about it. <laughs> How's Jersey? Uh, it's all right. It's uh, I'm in Pennsylvania right now, but it's oh, uh, it's I'm still getting used to it. Yeah, it's I'm just used to living in the woods. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little different from what I'm used to for sure. Yeah, yeah. Sticks and Poconos, man. It's, it's been like- a wild year, man. I like sold my house and then I left. I quit my job. It's just been a wild year. Yeah. That's good though. Fucking yeah, you're doing it. 
some days <laughs> some days are good uh yeah yeah i'm sure i've got faith in you <laughs> i appreciate that you're so kind <laughs> this this podcast man i was listening to uh you and your brother's episode earlier it, it, it was good i liked it yeah uh, man he's been getting jabs with like 18 visions and all these metal bands so he's been busy right. he, he moved to la he's been he's been doing it that's awesome yeah i saw that that's cool i followed his work for a while but yeah i see yeah. that he uh he does cool shit he does man he does album covers and t-shirts and some charity work and yeah man he's he's heavily involved but yeah man he's been he's been working with a lot of cool bands and turned beyond to some cool bands so it's awesome. It, it reminded me, like, it took me back to when I was doing things DIY and fucking MS Paint for my first band in the early 2000s and, like, making show flyers by either drawing them in school or making them with whatever shit that I could find online and splice all that imagery in. Because I was like, I was really into, uh, like at that time, it was like 2004, I guess. Uh, I was really into like Ed Gein and uh, Coliseum and a band called Lords. It's like this Louisville scene that did a lot of juxtapositions of like different fucked up imagery spliced together on Photoshop and just, you know, making weird images that like i was trying to replicate or you know what i mean like that was my influence for trying to make cool album covers or fucking t-shirts or whatever <laughs> it's wild how it's changed man because at the time we didn't have a choice now it's just I know. everyone and their mother is a, a, a graphic designer and works in photoshop <laughs> or is a photographer and does mood boards it's it's crazy everything is art oriented now like there's more creative people or more people getting into creative work than I feel like there used to be. <laughs> I don't know if it's just that I'm more aware of it now, but it, it seems like there's more of that. Well, dude, you know what it is now too? Like with social media, everything is a brand. You're, right. a, you're a brand. I'm a brand. The podcast is a brand. Your band is a brand. Like everything is a brand. So all of that I mean, I never thought I would be hiring somebody to do a photo shoot of me for this. You know what I mean? It's like, it's all that. And it's, it's necessary because it goes a long way, but right. Yeah, you're right, man. Everybody does it now. Cause I don't want to say you have to, but. Right. No, absolutely. It, there's, there's a lot of serious marketing into it. And I think that's the innocence of being a teenager and starting your first band and doing that just out of raw passion for playing music. Like, that isn't a focus yet, right? Like it's just the excitement of wanting to create. I think for a lot of us, it eventually morphs as you get older. The more you want to take it seriously, you start getting into this frame of thought, like what's marketable or what's the best way I can brand myself or position myself for some kind of notoriety and, and get shows or get signed or whatever it be, you know, it's, it's weird how that changes. When I started playing in uh, the punk band I played guitar in, that was it's like five years ago now, I want to say, 2016 or 2017. Everyone in the band came from a serious touring background in some capacity. And we were like a, an Indianapolis super group. <laughs> and 
we had literally no our only goal was to not take anything seriously except for the songwriting it was just a, a self-fulfilling thing we we're writing for us playing for us and taking nothing else seriously i think at one point our only goal was to try to put out a t-shirt that ripped off a bunch of pizza places logos so we could collect cease and desist letters <laughs> uh yeah that's awesome it was it was a lot of fun that was a lot of fun that was like that reignited the the childhood joy that i had when playing music you know it's funny too that you say that because a lot of people ask me like why don't you start a band again or why don't you start touring again because and i always come back with the same answer because it just it hits a point where as much as you don't want to take it serious you have to right and it comes down to you know, if somebody doesn't show up for practice or if you have a show or if you're supposed to record and it, it escalates so quickly that right. you, you're in it, then it's there. Then, then there's no way out because it's just so involved and, and one thing leads to another. And then, you know, what's on the roadmap or what do we want to accomplish? And for me, it's not that I don't want to do that, but it always gets way too serious than I want it to be. Right. Especially now. Right let's face it the reality of starting something new and it like becoming an overnight success it's like that's the kind of thing that would motivate me to take it seriously if it's like there's some real prospect of it being like okay i could make a living or comfortable living and not change my current lifestyle then sure like i'll take that seriously but i've i i yeah i've kind of been in that same place because i've got a band the band that i'm in everyone takes it seriously and I love the band, but I feel like I'm on a different plane with how I feel about it. And I feel like I'm almost being a disservice to them because like I'm a step back, you know, they're, they're hungry to play shows and to go out there and do it. You know, I've been relatively reserved, especially with the pandemic. Right. I've played shows this year but as busy as they've wanted to be, that's like made me a little uncomfortable. And I don't know, I've had to take a step back. And I mean, I just recorded with them. We're putting out a record in a month. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like things that will have to be done for promoting. And at this point they might've found someone else. I have no idea, but it's, you know, I'm still playing. I still have a passion for playing, but I don't know. It's, it's definitely a different space. Like there's, there's things that I've done that I know is good things that could have been something with the right push or being in the right place. But some of that never happened either because of lack of structure and organization within the band or uh, just people moving away whatever you know what i mean like logistics of being in different towns or states just complicated things and and other times like for the last couple years i've been playing in this uh like three-piece americana folk rock thing that's fucking great like the songs are incredible and could absolutely do something it was really easy to play with those guys because everyone just wanted to play right. there wasn't any ambition beyond that like we wanted to record just so we can have the songs to 
listened back to. Like it was always about like impressing impressing upon each other <laughs> and and not really striving to to be heard or recognized like yeah we want people to hear the songs but it wasn't like we were out there fucking throwing flyers all over the town for a show that we had it was just kind of whatever people see it people see it and that's more or less how i've been lately i feel like i've said this numerous times and i feel like it would take like it would take a life-changing situation for me to tour again like it would take a life-changing opportunity like a fucking salary that's too good to refuse and you know i I mean it'd have to be the fucking foo fighters call me (laughs) or something like it's something big to where i am afforded the ability to bring my girlfriend my pets and you know what i mean like not have any serious financial changes or struggles because of it so i was just having uh, that conversation do you remember um we toured with them a couple times and they did an Atari's tour set phasers to stun. Do you remember that band? Yeah, I do. So Zach, um, Zach and I still live in the same town in the Poconos and him and I hung out. We've been hanging out pretty frequently because I'm good friends with his two roommates. And we were talking about a very similar, very similar conversation of the circumstances to tour again. And I told him, I, I said, to be very honest, I said, I'm just, my heart's not in it to tour anymore um i don't want to sleep on floors i don't want to eat pizza every day i i'm not above those things i'm just i just don't want to do it right and and i did it for so long and i just don't want to go out for months on end and hope it works and worry about the attendance and then hustle cds it's when i was 18 and 19 a lot of that seemed fun and i think i was just eager for the experience and now I just want to sleep in a bed and not have my back hurt in the morning. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. That's, that's exactly what it is. And at the time when you're young like that, it's, I mean, the, the experience is all that you're really craving at that point. Cause it's new. It's exciting. You're young. There's still the youthful look at the world to where you don't have the responsibilities you have 10 years later kind of thing. Right. It's everything changes. And I feel like, I mean, yeah, you get to a point to where you've almost earned the right to not sleep on floors and do that sort of yeah, fucking yeah. hustle to find a place to sleep at night after a show or whatever. And I feel spoiled for that. Obviously, the Atari's thing, like, at least I got a fucking Motel 6 room every night. <laughs> and, hey. You know, like, that to me was luxury living. I was content with that because I was so fucking was I. 18. 19 but i mean think about the contrast of being 18 19 versus you know chris and brian being in their late 20s early 30s chris rowe pushing 40 i can't imagine joining the ataris at 27 it would still be it would still be like obviously a more desirable comfortable touring situation than what the majority of people and bands have so nothing like that i just think about like having families and having more responsibilities and that distance away from home. Like Aaron had a wife or has a wife. I mean, you would tour with leaving that at home and, you know, Chris, he had his wife and dogs and Mm -hmm. like just separation from family, having to pay the bills or 
counting on your significant other to be <laughs> the rock to keep shit grounded. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I can't imagine doing that. And I can't imagine realistically, like I'm in a great relationship. I can't imagine spending time away. Right. That long. Like, yeah, not just time away, like extensive time away. Yeah, exactly. Like being on the road for 30, 40, 50, 60 days. I mean, those were some fucking gnarly tours that I did. Like, yeah, they were long. Shit. I remember doing almost, it seemed like five months straight, just like this whole US tour plus Canada, South America, what, like just this gnarly long tour with like, maybe a total of two or three weeks breaking that up like a week at a time. If that over the course of like five or six months, like at 18, 19, that was awesome. I was totally down for that. Cause I had nothing. I didn't have a reason to be home. I had right. no responsibilities. I literally only needed to be on the road. It was just that the, the being on the road was my purpose and that's all I needed to do. But I mean, shit, I can't imagine being away for a week now. <laughs> like, so, so let me ask you this. So how old were you when you started playing drums? Eight. Okay. And then that fast was- forward, you met Chris and Brian at Rock and Roll Summer Camp. And you yeah. were 14, 15? 15, yeah. 15. And then you start drumming for their metal band. Yeah. Right. So they were, yeah. they were probably what, 25 at the time and you were 15. Yeah. I'd say that about right. And then fast forward, because I know you already had this conversation on Chris's podcast, but <laughs> then you were asked to join the Ataris at 18. Yeah. And you were senior Just before in high my 18th birthday. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, that's extremely unusual. It's, I show me another person with a story like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, I can't because I remember you telling me your first show at the Ataris was at the Hard Rock in Vegas. Yeah. So it's, Rio in Vegas. Oh, the yeah. Rio in Vegas. Okay. Yeah, but still, I mean, it was uh, a one-off, all perks included, right? Like I joined the band, and three weeks later, I'm fairly certain it was three weeks later was my very first show, and it was in Vegas. So picture me 17 already wrapping my mind around this ask because this is 2008 the atari's still big you know what i mean like it whatever like the excitement of that was enough but then like like hey our first show is going to be in vegas a one-off we're gonna fly on this date be there for three days fly back this day and like everything's paid for everything's covered we've each got a suite <laughs> and like uh, i mean a headlining show carolina liar opening which at the time they were like getting big i remember being like i thought that was wild that a band that of that caliber would be opening and at the time i don't think i understood how any of it worked like i also had this misconception that the atari's meant i was joining metallica <laughs> you know what i mean like right. like it was gonna be this massively prosperous venture <laughs> so you know man though i think it could be under the right circumstances for sure but 
I mean, there can't be pandemics. There has yep. to be clear communication. There should probably probably be a contract in place to save okay. your ass. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I don't, you made out within reason, but I think you also got out at the right time too. Yeah. You know what I no, mean? No, I definitely made out. Like I will never, never talk shit about my experience there. Cause I, I, I love Chris. I love the band. I mean, I've played shows with him since departing and hell I'm, typically open to to playing more you know because it's it's fun right um but yeah it was right time right time right place i was young and the experience of traveling was honestly mostly what i needed that was more than enough for me than you know like sure making money would have been nice but at least I didn't have bills or responsibilities. I didn't go in debt to right. play in that band. I got to see the world and I got to do things that people dream of doing. I'm grateful for that. Eternally grateful for that. So. I think the first time you and I were formally introduced, I think it was because there were two legs of the tour that I was initially on with Pull the Pin. Yeah. The first leg and then you guys flew to South africa and then you flew back and we did the second leg but i think it was on the second leg we met in scranton and the only reason i really remember that show is because matt gray showed up from bigwig oh yeah who, who also was the the drum tech for the ataris and he ended up doing a bunch of the misfit songs with you guys yeah so i remember that um but i also didn't remember i mean i remember you and i kind of shooting the ship and then days later finding out that we were the same age yeah right i know i i i feel like it, your memory might be better surrounding that than mine for obvious reasons um i do i do remember the first leg being reserved and not saying much to you and the the pulled pink eyes i don't even know why or what i was doing i just i don't know but i remember coming back and yeah us meeting and hitting it off and it kind of all blurs together from there but i remember within that first day or two us just like walking around the venue and shooting the shit and getting to know each other basically and part of that was because realizing we were the same age and it just you know there was a a lot of room to bond there what i hated the most about i don't want to say hated because that sounds really aggressive but a lot of the tours I did were before I was 21. And yeah. there, there were many circumstances where I wasn't even able to get into the venues. Right. And I remember that with Cowboy Angels. I remember that on a couple of those Atari shows um, and some other tours that I did as well. But I remember that being a thing for you and I, because we're on this tour. A lot of the shows are sold out and we still have these underage wristbands. And yet right. we're the ones working. Right, right. I feel like... I can only think of two instances where I was not allowed in the venue until we played, but immediately had to leave after we played. And one of those was in San Jose. And I remember I was pissy about the whole situation anyway and throwing a fucking fit. And part of that was exacerbated by the stage having fucking streamers behind me. So I couldn't plug my fan in. 
<laughs> so just like I was just being a pissy 18 year old like fuck you like I'll come in if I want to your venue sucks fuck San Jose like just being so bitter about the entire thing and I mean gratefully that didn't happen often I don't even remember the second time I just remember that it happened more than once but other than that I think that it was largely assumed that I was 21 because I mean the band being as old as it is most people not knowing about all the lineup changes or anything it's just like it's assumed that we're all of age so I was able to skirt by with that like well served drinks most of these places and now i kind of feel bad about that because i know more about the service industry and it's like these places could have lost their liquor licenses right shit could have been bad but you know at the time it's just like i'm fucking living for the excitement and the fact that i mean sure i was 18 19 but realistically the experience that i'd had in my life up at that point i was beyond that mentally and it whatever like i was getting served places we got served in vegas wasn't even 18 yet while we were in vegas and i was being served because i was assumed that i was at least you know actually it wasn't assumed we did a fucking radio show and the band said it was going to be my 22nd birthday (laughs) and no one no one verified that they just you know took everyone on their word and served me so I'm trying to think I used to get served as well because tour managing everybody thought I was older because I would go in and kind of check in with everybody and then make sure everything was good to go before the band did. Right. So I remember getting served a bunch of times and then funnier story. I remember getting served. Oh my goodness. I want to say, I don't remember where we were. I think we were in the Carolinas or Georgia or somewhere. The bartender asking me like, Oh, add me on MySpace." And I did, and it said I was 19. And she was serving me like whiskey sours like all day up until that point. She's like, this is your 19. And I was just like, <gasps> and <laughs> it was like, like, yeah, man, I, just, I really want to look younger than what I am. <laughs> like, yeah, it's uh, uh, like, I was just like, oh shit. Like, I didn't even think of that. But I was a That's, kid. Why would I? I consistently had to lie about my age for the most part because we were always playing in bars or. 21 and up venues right but i mean so chris and i did an episode let's see this is like a couple weeks ago we're actually going to re-record it tonight there was like some things that we had to cut out and and our conversation got like way too personal so we were like let's just just do this again but we were (laughs) but he and i were talking about some of the tour stories from warp tour in 2009 yeah and it was we were talking about you know leaving Indianapolis and driving cross country and going to um, the Grand Canyon and then going to Mesa and then going to LA. And that was one of my absolute favorite times. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. No, you're fine. So he was, we were telling, we were talking about all the weird shit that you guys used to talk about on the road where him and Brian would talk about like John Teeter or the Anunnaki or like (laughs) physics or Bigfoot for hours. Yeah. And, uh, I was telling, I was telling him about how you and I would watch movies while driving, and I don't yeah. condone it. But we had that monitor in the van where we would like we'd be like on a stretch of highway that was hundreds of miles long and straight, where you and I would just like veg out with our heads yeah. back, like two hands on the wheel, watching a movie. Yeah, man, that was I was so stoked when Chris got that fucking dash DVD player. 
for that very reason. Uh, but yeah, I also remember that. So good. <laughs> they pass out in the back. We're literally on autopilot. <laughs> but I mean, like, still, like Chris Rowe was the worst driver in the world. He would have a movie going, his laptop in his lap, his iPod in one hand and his phone in another making fucking playlists while driving down the highway. Like, that shit terrified me. Yeah. It's a wonder we never died. Yeah, looking back, it was funny, because Chris said the same thing. He's like, that's what I get for putting two 19-year-old kids in charge of my life that, like, barely have their driver's license. I was like, yeah, man. Hey, he survived. Yeah, he, he survived. survived. Thanks for chaperoning, Chris. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks for babysitting <laughs> us for years. <laughs> Considering, um, I mean, he babysat me probably for a couple more years because I lived with him for a while. Right? Yeah, I know. And that that always drives me crazy. I still think about this. Like, you lived... 30 minutes from me for how long were you there the time frame i'm i'm kind of unaware of because it was on and off but i want to say it was like throughout a two-year period what i thought and in those two years i was primarily mostly on the road i was also doing a lot of drugs at the time so like that was that's where my focus was lying but i i kicked myself still like all of the time that we lived so close together and didn't actually get it to hang so really the experiences that i've got with hanging out with you exclusively evolve around being on tour together and that sucks so <laughs> that there's sucks. there's two stories maybe three that i remember living in indiana so we flew back well we didn't fly back we got back from warp tour but i stayed at your house one night and we like went on a long what's that you did? We were at your mom's house, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fuck, I forgot about that. Okay. And yeah. <laughs> we went to, like, some podunk small little town outside of where you lived. I don't remember why. I mean, I know why. I'm just not going to say it on recording. And <laughs> You can if you want to. I will go into my recovery diatribe afterwards. <laughs> and I remember being in your, in your Ford Focus. It was and- wrecked to shit. Well, we jumped, uh, we jumped railroad tracks <laughs> and we landed and like, I don't remember what happened, but like we did that. And then we went to a bonfire like that weekend at some girl's house and you did a bunch of donuts and like tore up her cornfield. And then like two months later, you sent me a picture where you were doing something similar and you rolled it. Yes. 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 Indeed. I did. I had someone that was able to, get my car back on its wheels and continue to drive that busted fucking thing for a little while longer. Probably up until the point I went to rehab. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Holy shit. That just unlocked so many memories for me that I had lost. This is why I love talking with people that I was around in that time frame because man, it kind of sucks. It's scary to think about like, shit like that that was totally normal for me to do (laughs) i was very accustomed to uh that is very bizarre behavior for most people (laughs) and it's like now when i think back it's like i can't believe i did that shit it's it's been so long ago it's wild to think about but i mean but honestly like for the time frame i mean most kids do dumb shit well yeah it's just a matter of like where on the spectrum it falls Mine was just so consistent and it's because of a lot of it was just 
numbed decision making. <laughs> but you're good now, because I so I remember, I remember you, you and I being in touch while you were on tour with because you were still in the Ataris, yeah. and Chris had left, I had left. I remember still being in touch with you and texting a lot and shooting the shit, and then you you leaving the band, and yeah. then I didn't hear from you. And then I got a call from you a couple months later and you were like, what's up, dude? I'm in rehab and things were good. And you had like one phone call and you're like, I haven't talked to you. I haven't caught up with you. So I wanted to shoot the shit. And I remember that because it like it caught, I was looking at the phone number and I'm like, well, who the hell is this? <laughs> and it was you. So, I mean, that was, I mean, while you did leave the band, I mean, the timing was right and it was necessary. And the way I look at it, you're still here. So kudos. Right. He's good and wildly rejoined the band after that for a brief, brief stint. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. that, you know, that was, I didn't willingly leave the band like at, at that time before I went to rehab. So that was, uh, I was getting out of control and doing more dumb and dangerous shit while we were out. So I think for the first, I feel like the first year that I was in the band, I wasn't so bad that I was like bringing drugs on the road or like crazily seeking drugs in different cities or anything. But like as the addiction progressed, I got more and more careless and just started doing shit that was probably fucking scary for Brian and Aaron and Chris that like, I mean, it just got to a point that I was dissociated and checked out because whatever, you know what I mean? Like I enjoyed what I was doing, but I was just very much engrossed in the addiction. So, and I want to preface, cause I know that people are going to hear this and I want to preface with while we do have a lot of funny stories and we did have a lot of good times on tour, we're not condoning any of this. And if, no. you, and if you need help or you need somebody to talk to you, there are resources there because ultimately a lot of those fun times, just like you said, weren't so fun anymore within a couple months to a couple years later. Right. You know what I mean? So I just want to preface with that, that if somebody's listening yeah. and they need help or they need a resource, they do exist. You're living proof that it works. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's huge of you to admit that, and I welcome that contact as well for anyone listening who might be going down that same road, whatever I'll talk to you. I mean, I'm happy to talk to anyone and, and shed some insight to why I was able to successfully get sober and have a life that I'm proud of. I enjoy, you know? So yeah. And, you're, and you still play music. It's not like all is lost. Play music, Right. <laughs> like, there, my life could have gone down a totally different tra trajectory. Like I, I could be in prison, like could be dead. Like there are things that I narrowly escaped that I'm grateful for. So it's, I'll never speak about it lightly. Like, of course I can joke about these things now, but uh, yeah, at the time I was, I wasn't even really asked to leave the band. We got home from a tour I want to say there was a show booked maybe a month after being home that I wasn't asked to play. And I kept reaching out like, what the fuck's going on, whatever. And 
was asked to sit it out and to focus on myself and we'll see what happens from there. And I was bitter about it. Like at that time I was very bitter about it and said some fucking hateful, hasty things that I don't remember. I just remember the headspace I was in. That was definitely a, a component of pushing me to, you know, reflect and reevaluate what the fuck I was doing with my life and ended up going to rehab, checked myself into rehab within, I don't know, that first couple months of being home, spent probably a total of three months between that and like sober living in a halfway house after getting out and working on that. Uh, Ted asked if I would come fill in for a tour for Don't Panic. I remember that because you guys practiced at my house in my garage. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Drove out to Pennsylvania to do that tour with Gasoline Heart. Brian filling in on bass for that. So that was the first tour that he and I had done together since I'd gotten sober. And um, I think because of how well that went and him being able to see me doing as well as I was after we got home from that tour and he had just moved out to Arizona, the band relocated. Um, I want to say it was the day after I got back, he and Chris conference called me together to ask if I would come back to the band and move to Phoenix or Tempe. Um, so it did. And I started a relationship probably right around the same time <laughs> and moved out to Arizona in I think January 2012 yeah it would have been 2012 so moved out January 2012 obviously still young had a young girlfriend and I'm somehow thinking that we're gonna make a long distance thing work so like that was some sort of strain on me and I was in a different headspace with wanting clarification on my security. Like I don't want to uproot and move halfway across the country (laughs) or on the other side of the country and not really know if I'm going to have the means to afford this lease that I'm signing and just being very uncertain about what was going on. So Brian and I got an apartment together and I think that I was there for three weeks, maybe a month before we left for a tour that was like 40 dates, 45 dates, something. Sounds about right. Sounds like an Atari store. Yeah. I think eight days in I quit. Chris and I had a blow up and argued about some shit after a show that was just like not vibing well tensions were high whatever mostly because like i i think that i had my own shit that i was carrying that like that energy was just being felt by everyone so turned into a thing and i was uh, i don't know how to explain it like i was soul searching to determine whether or not like I was going to stay in this band because I mean, at the time I had this romanticized idea that this was it. Like this was 
this is the band that I'm going to fucking tour in forever. And I'm going to see it through to the big comeback (laughs) and it be that. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that I got to a point to where I wasn't feeling it anymore. And when I came to that real realization, I was kind of heartbroken about it. You know, like I was pretty upset by it. So I want to ask you a question because I remember in that time frame, not only the Atari stuff, you go away to rehab, you get out, you do that tour with Don't Panic and Gasoline Heart. Did music like become fun for you again? And then it became a job again? Like what was the, the dynamic of that? Cause I could easily see that. Cause I remember for a couple of those times that you guys were practicing at my house, it was, you know, my dad was grilling and it was like an all day fun thing. And like, it was, it was something new. So do you think that there was just a weird dynamic of, of, of music being fun again and then being a job again that made have might've thrown you off or. Yeah, kind of, it was kind of that and kind of feeling, I think I put some pressure on myself for being like 21 at the time. I wasn't going to be able to take care of myself. Didn't know if like the, the income was going to be there. I had this relationship that I was trying to continue with this girl back in Indiana and that was pulling me that way. I, yeah, I just think that like at the time it wasn't, it wasn't feeling fun. Like I was just trying to hold on to it because it was my dream job. Like it was something that I wanted to do, but it wasn't feeling, wasn't feeling like the fun of four friends playing music because they love playing music. I think it's a prime example too, man, because like you said, being 21 years old, most people aren't even out of college yet. And you had already traveled the world. You were on tour for seven to eight months out of the year, if not more. You had been to Europe a couple of times. You had been to South America. You had been to South Africa. You had done the full, you had done full U.S. tours many times throughout a year. (laughs) Countless times. You know what I mean? And, and, and I don't want to say toured into the ground because that sounds negative, but that's a lot of, that's a lot of touring for someone who hasn't, well, let's, let's be real. I mean, you weren't really touring with Chris and Brian's band prior. You were right. doing some like yeah, one-off no, exactly. shows. So to Those like, were my first tours. Right. So you're basically like handed this itinerary that says go for the next how many years. I mean, yeah, that takes a lot out of you. Cause that, I mean, you're exactly right. The extent of my touring up to that was probably like two weeks on the road for like shit that just some of the shows panned out. Some of them didn't. So like, right most of my touring has been in a spoiled way because the money was there and shows were consistent. Like obviously people were showing up. So Dude, spoiled or not anybody given the situation you were in, we all would have done it. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I get it. I worked for you guys and it was awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was Cause, awesome. Cause the tour that I did before that, I think we had two hotel rooms the whole time we slept in the van we were showering right. on boardwalks at beaches. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then all of a this sudden, just... like, you do what you have to do. But I mean, and then all of a sudden, it's like, you have a hotel room. We're going to go out to family dinner every night. Like, everything is paid for. And you're going to get paid right. at the end. Like, it was, yeah, it was pretty cool. I look back on all of those times fondly, you know, and tune out the the bad shit for the most part. But I mean, for what it was, like, I'm, I'm grateful for all of those experiences. Like, there was... There's nothing that I can bitch about that I feel like I would have done differently. I feel like it played out how it needed to for me in terms of growth, being a human, you know what I mean? Right. Like those are things that 
I had to go through to be who I am and where I am. So I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't change any of that for that very reason. So I think, I think touring for me became a love hate because much like you, I peaked in my musical and touring career by the time I was 21 or 22. And at that time I was like, you know what, I'm going to ride this out till 25 and anything after that. I'm, you know, this is it for me. I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a hard stop on it because it just got to be not necessarily a gamble, but it's a hustle and it's putting yourself out there and finding things. And the second I stopped touring and the second I stopped um, accepting tours or like even entertaining that conversation, I fell off like that. And then getting back into it or, calling people to say, Hey, what are you guys up to becomes non-existent because yeah. you know what I mean? They, because there's somebody else who's going to take your spot, whether it's working, whether it's guitar teching, whether it's playing guitar, whatever it may be. But for me, yeah. it became a love hate where when I was on the road, I couldn't wait to be home. And when I was home, I couldn't wait to be on the road. And it was just like a very unhealthy relationship where a couple days in, I'd be so excited. And probably by the first week, I'd be like, get me the fuck out of this van. And I don't know, I guess the only time I have wonder about whether or not it'd be different is if it were, you know, a a next level tour to where it's, you know, buses and bus calls and, and, uh, you know, the the next level of band to where it's different venues, more of a a professional thing. Mm -hmm. Not to say that ours wasn't professional, but I mean, we ran that slim. <laughs> you well, know, so. I mean, the way, the way the Ataris tour, which I, I don't hate, is it's kind of a way of maximizing profits. There's, oh, absolutely. It's, you know, Motel 6s aren't super expensive. Get, being in a van is not super expensive. Opting out of a bus is the cheapest way to go. You know, going to a family dinner and taking the buyout is usually a better option than eating the bullshit that the venue gets you. And again, I'm not talking smack on promoters that want to feed you, but <laughs> I did a tour with pull the pin and we, we like, we tallied and joked around about like how much pizza we ate. Because, because well, the, but they'd be like, well, the, the budget's $40, but you know how much you can get, how much pizza you can get for less than that? Like, that's the, right. that's the mentality because, again, a promoter is trying to maximize their profits as well. Right. Um, and it just got to the point where I'm just like, oh, man, like pizza again. Like, I love pizza, but like not, right. not three months in a row. <laughs> right, right. So that's why I wonder, like, maybe it'd be different if it were you know, the, the next level of touring to where it's uh, – a bigger band that has things. And I feel like for a while I had that mentality of, of networking, you know, like doing warp tour, trying to meet as many bands that were on that level that were, or, you know, well, who I saw as being on that next level that, you know, their, their labels paying for the bus or it's calculated and they're all making, you know, a decent living like those are the things it's like okay like i'm either going to network my way into a band like this or have like back plan or find a way to work for them or something and you know i i applaud like brian and um tom for staying 
and finding their way into touring via being techs or sound right. engineers, whatever, like they did a good job at doing like what I wish I could have done. At least I think that I wish I could have done that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I think there, I think there's two parts to that. I agree with you, but I think it also comes down to the band that you're working for because right. there, there are bands that I've, that I've also toured with, or even that I know where the band is actually a business and right. there, there's you're you're while you're going out and you're playing every night and you're going on tour, it's from, it's into a pool. So if the guarantee for the night is $5,000 and then there's merch sales that are going in, like it's, it's divvied up down to the penny as to who's collecting what and when what's getting paid out to who so that you can keep living and still collect a salary. Right. It's not just like, here's 50 bucks for playing tonight. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So, so I think that there's two parts of that where yes, it can be done, but there's just some bands that don't operate that way and that's fine. But if you want to do it long-term, I think it's very important to set it up as a business entity to say, Hey, this is the percentage you're getting, or this is the pool and this is what's being paid out. And, and to be honest, man, I mean, yeah, not a lot of bands do it that way when they should. I think that secures yeah. longevity. Right. No, absolutely. You've got to look at it as a business and it's got, there has to be accounting. There has to be accountability for all of the money going in and out. And I mean, we never did. It was, there wasn't a ledger. There was just a, you know, it was whimsical. And right. I, I'd imagine it still is, but I think when you're getting into that place where like you're doing a few grand a night, five grand a night, you definitely have to have good accounting, bookkeeping. And especially if you're bringing out more than just band members, like anytime you start having people working for you and there's multiple hands in the pot, absolutely. That has to be mad. Like, otherwise you are going to fail end up owing money or losing money or whatever. And there's just like, get to the end of the tour. and like, why, why do I have nothing? What the fuck did I spend on throughout this tour? Like, it's also really, it's also really easy when you're getting paid like that and you're getting paid in cash to just spend it. Like I remember getting paid cash and getting a per diem and stuff like that. And before a tour starting being like, Oh, I'll just stash this $12 a day and I'll make it work. And like, it never works. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's depending on, on, on the work that you're doing or whatever it was. Um, it never works. You want it to, but it's, it's tough, man. I think that also comes with maturity, but also by that time you're so mature that you're like, fuck this. I'm not doing it. Right. (laughs) For real. You know what I mean? It does seem that way. It really does. Especially after you get to a point to where like you're working normal jobs and you're making consistent money, you're responsible for, you know, rent bills, whatever the fuck you have. Like there's a, cosmic shift in your fucking mind that changes everything regarding income and how you spend and how you save so yeah man when when you have the pressure of of bills and everything else and then you see how i don't want to say how easy it is but when you see how easy it is to collect a check every two weeks i mean it's it it puts a lot of things into perspective yeah no it, it is that way and i i feel like that's why i've been so partial to just playing for the fun of it again and finding like-minded people who just want to play. If something happens, like I'm not going to sabotage it. I'm not going to run from it. Like certain things fell into place how they would need to then sure. But I'm 
no longer seeking that. That's not my goal anymore. Just I, I play for enjoyment, self-fulfillment, you know, that's why I write. It's, I want to make music that I like listening to like, and that's it. And it's an excuse to hang out with friends, you know, especially being an adult and having busy lives. Like sometimes it's easier to set up a fucking rehearsal than it is to go grab a beer. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's outrageous how right. you right how hard it is to make plans let alone book a tour like i remember you know even talking to the dudes from don't panic now because ted actually called me and asked me if i would tour manage and under some circumstances i couldn't you know even even with those dudes i mean I'm not trying to rush their age but they're all almost 40 you know what i mean right. like jobs you know i don't know if i don't know if any of them have kids but like there's a lot of variables to juggle there Right. Yeah, no, there is. And, you know, it's funny you say that Ted, he'd reached out to me about the possibility of of me filling in for a few shows uh, in October in Florida. This was months back and it's not happening, but seeing if I was available and I was excited about it. It's like, man, yeah, it'd be awesome to see you guys and and play some shows in that capacity as like a fill in for the fun of it again, because that's like not something I've done in forever. I haven't toured in forever or done anything like that. Like I've played some out state shows, but I haven't like, I don't know, to fly to Florida for a one-off or, you know, a weekend warrior thing. Like, hell yeah, that sounds like fun. So cool. That kind of thing is always exciting for me. And I've had Chris Rowe. It's been a while since it's happened, but like, the first couple of years after I left the band, there would be things that would come up that he would always offer me. Like he offered me a three week tour in Australia and like something in Europe, just like random things where their other drummer couldn't do it. So I was the first call and several of the times like Australia, I tried to make happen. Like that was the first one that I like seriously tried to make happen but i had a job and i mean like a career job and i had almost enough vacation time to make it work but not enough so um couldn't end up doing it and i mean he couldn't afford to pay me what (laughs) my job was paying me so it was like like I would have just been doing this more or less for the ability to go to Australia again. Right. So just for the sake of travel and that would have been fun, but been those few times, but no touring since then I've played some really fun shows since then locally or like Ohio, Chicago, wherever places are surrounding Indy. I'm happy. <laughs> like, That's my quality of life is good. Right. So I am content doing music as a hobby sometimes it's frustrating knowing my skill (laughs) set and being unknown (laughs) so to speak like like i know that i have the capabilities of of performing and and doing something that not that many people can do you know what i mean like that's about the only thing that i tussle with anymore but it's i don't know i haven't 
I haven't necessarily given up on someday being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I don't. I'm not doing anything to actively pursue it either. <laughs> At least you're honest. Right. I mean, that's that. So maybe someday. So let's do this because I don't want to keep you from your girlfriend and your personal life for the rest of the night. <laughs> However, when I do these, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you and I got to talk because usually there's an agenda. I like that there isn't one for our conversation. We just, cause yeah. I, I was going to say you and I haven't like had an extensive conversation. I think since this is probably March of last year when the world shut down, I think yeah. I like was driving around like I needed to get out of the house and I called you for like two hours, like on a, in like a, like doing a loop, like just to talk about music and, and, and life. When I do these, I mean, there's a, there's a significant part of these. It's like a bunch of shit talk about yeah. some bands and some musicians and stuff you're into and stuff you're not. So I want to get your feedback on some of these topics. Okay. So <laughs> let's get it. If you had to pick, we'll start with this one. If you had to pick, your favorite album art, what would it be? You don't have, not even musically, the, the, the quality or how good the songs are, but if you could pick a record that the album art is your favorite, what would it be? I'm like running through my mind right now, like trying to think of like quintessential records for me, shit that I love. Cause it's like sometimes the records are great and their album covers suck, but. Right. Or vice versa. Um, Converge, you fail me. Surprised you didn't say Jane it. Doe, I was going to say, was, I was, like, I was say, you're not going to do Jane Doe. <laughs> I mean, I love Jane Doe. Jane Doe was definitely like a, a life changer of a record for me. But the first Converge record I ever heard, the first one that ever drew me in was You Fail Me. That sent me down a rabbit hole of just loving Jacob Bannon's art in general. Of all the cities around the world that you've played, do you have a favorite show or a favorite city? It's kind of a tie. <laughs> and, okay. Um, Medellin, Colombia. And then Jakarta, Indonesia. That show was insane for the experience of... Like, you would have thought we were the fucking Beatles. We get to the airport and are escorted by, like, a 30-team entourage with fucking police and military through the airport through a crowd of i don't know maybe a hundred or more fans that are there with fucking signs cheering that we're there didn't expect that whatsoever <laughs> to going to this insanely lavish hotel to where each of us has our own suite and like a personalized greeting from hotel management written on our fucking desks in the room and every single day getting off of the elevator going into the lobby there was 30 to 50 fans waiting hoping to see us like that's fucking insane and then we played in a soccer stadium like what the fuck that's insane to me it's like you can go from being this to playing fucking i don't know 60 people in texas <laughs> and no one really giving a shit so like the the contrast was just so surreal but that was like that is a memory that i cherish because it felt like fucking big time <laughs> right like that's cool yeah it was it was weird favorite drummers maybe top three Bonham, Glenn 
Kotke. He's the drummer for Wilco. Probably Bill Stevenson. So it's funny that you said Bonham and Wilco right off the bat because a question that I always ask are bands that you respect their contribution to music, but they don't do it for you. And I always say Zeppelin and Wilco. That's fucking hilarious. (laughs) Ah, That Uh, sucks. And I say Radiohead. That's fine. (laughs) That's fucking hilarious to me. So if you had to pick the bands in history that you know their contribution to music, but they just don't do it for you, who would they be? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, But you're not saying they're terrible. They just don't do it for you. Like you too or fucking you too definitely doesn't do it for me that is i'm so glad you said that i fucking hate you too um i can probably tolerate some of uh war but i fucking hate you too <laughs> like a lot i don't get it i don't understand that fan but i respect the fucking edge still don't even know what that guy's real name is and it's weird to me that he's just the edge but um i i have some respect for his approach to a guitar and i think the only reason i do is because i saw the documentary it might get loud (laughs) with him and jack white and jimmy page but uh yeah i fucking hate you too that's a good one though i there's yeah there's a couple bands like that like I uh, I can't get into Radiohead. Um, so, you know, kind of same. Like, I kind of did, or at least tried to. And I, I, I got into End Rainbows because of it having more energy, I feel like. But I haven't listened to Radiohead in 10 years. Like, I, it's a band that I take it or leave it. Yeah. I don't think it doesn't really missing, make a difference. I don't think you're missing anything. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say it. Do, it doesn't really make a difference to me, but I I don't doubt their Radiohead and Tom York in general. Like they they deserve their credit for whatever, but it just doesn't do it for me. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. I get. It. I feel that way about a lot of things. So of all the touring you've done, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a band that you've toured with or anything, but can you think of a band where you love, you absolutely love the band, but their fans are awful? Yeah, um, Chiodos is like the first thing that came to mind, like liking the dudes and like enjoying some of the music, but thinking the fans suck. Actually, you know what? That just reminded me. Sleeping with Sirens is probably a better example. Like, no, it's not because I don't like the band. I don't like music anyway. I love Nick Martin, the guitar player. He's a great guy. I don't doubt the rest of the guys are also great. Music I can't stand, but their fans, they also seem to be like, I don't know. They're young. I feel that way about two bands, two bands mainly. And I brought this up on another episode, Dropkick Murphys. Oh, fuck. That's a great example. Lucero. Ooh, really? Let's talk about that. I want to talk about that a little bit because I feel like Lucero's fan base and crowd varies a little state to state yeah let's talk about that what's it like for you i've seen lucero a bunch of times and i absolutely love lucero they're they're probably one of my favorite bands and i think a crowd at a lucero show is 
a mix of like punk kids and the uh, kids is a loose term. Um, yeah. Because Lucero's that band, it's like they're kind of inspired by like rock and roll and country, but they're also inspired by punk bands. Right. Like, I, I remember them being on Warp Tour and, and being like, what the fuck? Why are they here? And the older I, and know? the older I got, I was like, I love this shit so much. Right. Um, and I think, I think Chris Rowe turned me onto that way yes. earlier because he was all about it. I feel like the fans at Lucero shows get way too drunk. And like the last time I saw them, it was 2014. It was up in Boston and I just got back from Europe. I was on tour. I drove up there, went to the show and everybody kept buying Ben drinks. Like they were trying to get him hammered and then they were trying to fight each other. And then they were yelling at him for not drinking. And I'm thinking to myself, this poor guy's trying to perform. These are already the saddest songs ever. I'm sure it's probably really hard for him, and you're just making it worse. I feel like that's always a goal to get Ben shithoused, which is weird. That I mean, it's a it's a weird tradition, but that's a thing that seems to be unanimous, like state to state. For here, and I'm sure it's not all that different. Um, I saw Lucero two years ago, and it seems like the crowd is former scene kids or punk rockers turned outlaw. Their whole fucking vibe and presence is they've immersed themselves in the fucking Instagram chopper bobber world, ride their fucking nicely built fucking dinas and, and you know, whatever fucking bike they've got in their cowboy boots and their fucking fresh pressed Wranglers and uh, fucking dirty white tee. And it's like literally all of these dudes just fucking, you know, covered in tattoos, like got the, the traditional garb going up and they're making sure that the photos look good on Instagram with the right fucking sepia tones and, and, you know, being in the, the fucking all their bikes parked right out in front of the venue and, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird in India, especially because like there's a fucking a new, newer uh, honky tonk bar that like literally all the fucking old punk rock kids, metalheads, and scene kids are just like now everyone just apparently fucking loves George Jones and drinking Lone Star and fucking doing a two step every night, and everyone wants to build a fucking chopper and drive a fucking hot rod and it's you know everyone becomes a fucking barber or gets a good fucking uh a good high and tight and like that's the fucking scene man it's so bizarre to me you know what i hate about everything you just said i fall into like 85 percent of that without the line <laughs> dancing because i went to barber school i have a harley you know it's like when you know <laughs> those are okay things that's totally fine it's weird to me because it seems like it became a trend at least around here yeah out here and too. It's like sure maybe those people genuinely love country and have for a long time but they've suppressed or hidden it during certain stages of their life because no you know what it is dude i'll be very honest it's not that at all it's that guys like chuck reagan and tim barry and Brian Fallon and Dave Haas, all these guys from punk bands are now older and they're playing acoustic shit. And they're like, Hey, check this other shit out. It's pretty good. Right. So, and that I mean, opened 
door to people enjoying it and it's just and, and, and i'm i mean and i'm i'm no different i mean there's some stuff that i listen to now that if you had told me i would like at 16 years old i would laugh you know same. I, mean? I mean absolutely same i fall into that i mean i fucking i bought a coulter wall record last week like i fucking i like tyler childers and fucking sturgill simpson and yeah. shit like that but like for me i genuinely did despise country all my life like growing up like it never did it for me granted the only country i'd ever heard was fucking pop radio country and right. i didn't really have exposure to anything else because my parents fucking hated country except for my dad he had a dwight yoakam cassette that like that i knew and i enjoyed right so at some point i discovered this world of folk americana singer songwriter shit that like was real and genuine and that changed my perspective on what country was agreed so i could enjoy it but uh one of the biggest conduits for that was shooter jennings and doing warp tour with him and brian i think brian was already a shooter fan and he like gave me all the records and i think that i loved those shooter records because it was a lot of a lot more southern rock like high energy like there's a grit to it that it's like i wouldn't have necessarily pegged as just country I, I um, but yeah that that opened a lot of doors for me and then like i don't regularly listen to like a lot of melancholy music because like i don't know certain tones certain things i just i avoid it because i don't want to fucking get my feelings like i get my feelings but like usually when i'm listening to music i'm i'm listening to fucking turbo negro or acdc or fucking nashville pussy or something you know what i mean just like it's it's all about that for me lately but uh remember rocky Voltolato, if i'm saying that right um singer songwriter very folky like that was kind of a an intro into that and then same with like brian fallon and those kinds of guys yeah like that that opened up more so yeah i get that and i think the last one that i would say terrible or great band terrible fans is anything street punk because every street punk show i've ever been to we all have the same love for the band but somebody gets stabbed <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much i guess that's the other thing fucking crust punk kids like bridge kids call them bridge kids here because there's a lot of uh, train hopping crust punks that sleep under bridges around the area fine some of them are great some of them are awful but uh, a lot of those fucking punk crowds are i don't know man like i don't i don't exactly understand it like growing up going to punk shows like there's a, a small group of weird fucking people <laughs> that, yeah. that get into it that are just like ultra violent and too anarchist to like be able to fucking enjoy i don't know it's, it's a yeah, weird there's thing. like there's like a camaraderie that you think exists and then it doesn't right like it should be there but there's still like those fucking clicks within the the crowd and that's yeah that kind of sucks like i remember it so kind of circling back to dropkick murphy's when i was 13 i went to see the casualties and dropkick murphy's at the congress theater in chicago 
And I don't know how the neighborhood is now, but at least at the time it was kind of a rough area. <laughs> and I remember uh, it was me, my friend Nick and my other friend Mike. We're all about the same age. And my mom drove us to this show, dropped us off outside of this venue and then promptly left like she wasn't sitting out and waiting in the car in that area like was fucking terrified but <laughs> was like also not gonna rob us of of wanting to see our fucking we just went to see the casualties i didn't even stay for dropkick because i didn't i fucking hated dropkick at the time <laughs> like I, I didn't give a shit and you know i dropkick still doesn't do it for me i respect them and I enjoy a song or two, but I don't like the fucking Celtic Irish. Same with Flogging Molly. Like I like a song or two, but like I, I just can't get into the bagpipe punk rock. <laughs> no, I like I like some of the offshoots of that of of them. I like um, I love Street Dogs. Um, sure, okay. I love the Bruisers. I, that's <laughs> pretty much it. I mean, I'm with you though. I mean, I like I like some of the earlier stuff, like the Barroom Hero stuff. Sure. But some of the later stuff, like with Blackout and whatever, it just, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, it's not for me. It's just something that for me at the time seemed very polished. You know, I guess that now that I'm really thinking about it, though, I also feel like I probably didn't give them much of a chance. Like, I didn't give No Effects a chance until I was fucking 18. Oh, I love No Effects. <laughs> See, I mean, I also love No Effects. Like, I fucking love No Effects, but I did not. I like, I feel like when I was coming up in punk rock, I was such an elitist. Like I had this mentality of like only a, a certain kind of punk rock being acceptable, like turned my back on these other bands. Like, and almost out of like a, it's like a fucking peer pressure, embarrassment kind of thing. Like, I mean, me at 13, 14, you wouldn't, I wouldn't be caught dead listening to like fucking MXPX or something because like, no, I'm listening to a global threat and fucking subhumans and like right. shit that is in this certain vein of punk rock. Right. And that's like that elitist mentality. Yeah. I feel like is very much still alive within the, the punk scene, like especially with street punk, like, you know, like OG casualties fans and unseen and like fucking clip 45 lower class brats, like all of that, like street punk scene from the early nineties, early two thousands, like a specific crowd for that. Yep. And I feel like a lot of them were elitist to the point where like, we're only listening to this type of music and like, Rancid isn't punk. No effects isn't punk. Fucking Dropkick Murphys isn't punk. Like shit like that. That is just whatever. But you know what's funny about a lot of that though is they had no problem putting their records out on their labels though. No shit. You know what I mean? So if you look at it that way, it's like you you know like not to be that guy, but I mean I think the unseen was on Hellcat. Yeah, I mean Epitaph, Hellcat, fucking they were on. I think that AF Records even put out a fucking unseen. I mean like they did. All kinds of different things you know but i mean yeah, you're right though i also remember when the unseen put out the fucking record that mtv started playing one of their videos and was like it, was it explode yeah so i remember when that happened and it's like 
I remember people being that elitist to where they're like, fuck the unseen, they sold out. And that's such a fucking stupid mentality because it's people that don't actually know how the music industry works or anything like it. Like they're assuming that they sold some crazy deal and got rich, but like that didn't happen at all. <laughs> that was my girlfriend. <laughs> well, hey man, do your thing. Go. I, I kept you long enough. Go do your thing. We're going to do another episode. We'll catch up. I'll probably have this out in a couple days and uh, I'll shoot you a text message, dude. Awesome. Sounds good. I love talking to you. This was fun. Sounds good, man. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later. I love you, Jake. I've known you for a long time, and I'm just really glad to see that you're doing well. I think you'll start to recognize a theme in these episodes. Our circle is relatively small, so you'll hear us reference people and bands that you might have heard in previous episodes as well. In episode one, I had a conversation with AJ Larson from Don't Panic. Jake also played drums on a tour for Don't Panic years ago, so we know a lot of the same people. We touched a little bit on what Jake is up to currently in music, but we didn't talk about any specific bands or any specific projects or shows that he's currently pursuing. As soon as we hung up the phone, I shot him a text and said, hey, what song would you like on the end of your episode? And he sent me this track by a band that he's in called Eros. So here it is. Love me anyway. <laughs>